the story of the Good Samaritan, I think, is my favorite biblical old story. And the message there is that he loves us all. You know, he wel- welcomes everybody, even though they're not part of the same group. And I think this is a massively powerful uh, message which you get from the teaching of Jesus Christ. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into the life, faith and ministry of Christians in the public eye. Today I'm joined by the journalist and author Peter Oborn. Peter has twice won Columnist of the Year at the Press Awards, as well as several accolades for his sports writing. He's the former chief political commentator of the Daily Telegraph and former political editor for The Spectator. He's written several books about politics and religion, and his latest work, Faith of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam, is out now. Peter Obel, welcome to the show. Hello, lovely to be with you. Peter, the one thing that unites everyone that comes on this show is is faith, faith in Jesus. So can you can you start by telling us a bit about your own personal faith journey? Well, I, I went to um, um, a series of Anglican schools, um, very, and we we learned a rather old-fashioned version, I should say. Well, the old, the traditional Anglican, you know, Matins, even song, which I remain remain very attached to. It's my, I like that. Um, I feel most at home with that particular version of of Anglican Christianity. I love, you know, the Domitus and you know, reading the lesson and old-fashioned hymns, um, and so on. Uh, that's my version of Christianity, uh, uh, and I more I haven't gone through any great faith crises. My faith has strengthened over the years. I've never I wouldn't in the set. I've been very influenced by reading um, the books of Karen Armstrong, I, I, and her interpretation of uh, Jesus as a form of anarcho syndicalist uh, revolutionary um, in Galilee. I think that's right. Fair way of putting it, but you know that he's a very profoundly um, subversive figure, and and the head of a political movement to get uh, as much as anything else. I find that very interesting, and um, I think there's a, a great deal of truth in this. And that's the Christ I've really seen up. What side of Jesus's subversive nature interests you? Can you give me some examples? Yes, I mean, I think it's all there in the Gospels. Uh, you know that the, you know, the remarks he makes about rich men entering the kingdom of of heaven, uh, and the journeys of the disciples um, going through uh, villages in in Palestine. Um, sort of hearing the poor and relying on the um, the humanity and the generosity of other villagers is she put you know the, the portrayal of it is it reminds us it's under you know that Jesus was born at the height uh, well at the start of the Roman Empire and Roman dominance of the of the Middle East uh, where you have uh, brutal um, a, a brutal uh, authoritarian rule based on violence and in particular the use of crucifixion to 
punish anybody who rebels against Roman rule. And Jesus is articulating a form of an alternative method of organizing society. And I think this is, and that is, I think that Christianity is a much more um, uh, subversive faith than we were taught at, at my lovely Anglican school. It's interesting that you talk about Jesus as sort of those are the, the things about Jesus that you like. You know, you know those teach those radical teachings around poverty, um, and you know, woe to the rich, etc. Those sorts of the beatitudes and kind of things. Sinners. Yes, the way he embraces sinners, I, I think that's very important. That people who kind of outcasts. The, the story of the Good Samaritan, I think, is my favourite biblical or New Testament story. Mm. Um, and the message there is that he 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 loves us all. You know, he wel- welcomes everybody, even if they're not part of the same group. And I think this is a very um, that is a massively powerful uh, message which you get from the teaching of Jesus Christ. And what does your faith mean to you on a day-to-day basis? Do, do you have a do you have a prayer life, or, or or is or is faith something that you tend to do on a Sunday where you go to church and you you, you connect with God in those times? Well, I, I try uh, and say my prayers in the morning and the evening. I don't do it very as much as I anything like as much as I I should. I I, I listen uh, or read the Gospels and. Um, not all the time, and I, I read around um, uh, religious books. Well, I think you can't do better than um, uh, I'm just currently, currently reading Mr. Eichert, the uh, medieval, presumed German um, uh, monk, I think. He, and again, I get slightly, uh, you get very struck by the similarities of the there's this sort of mystical talk about um, surrender of self. Um, and it's not about, nothing is about you, it's about us. I think I, I think this is important, isn't it? The, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, it's not, it's we, not me. Yeah, forgive us our sins, not give me my sins. We're talking as um, a as a collective, and our duty is to each other. Actually, there's an incredibly powerful uh, messages there for the current social order. If you think of how that's collapsed into individual selfishness uh, and the rule of the hi- the hyper rich. Mm. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that because it's really interesting. You know, the words that you're saying to me here, collective, um, you know, the, the importance of Jesus, Jesus is aligning himself with with the poor. Um, let's talk a bit about your own personal journey, Peter, because you were a conservative for a long time, weren't you? Which doesn't, you know, people don't tend to think of that party as the party that aligns itself with the poor. Um, tell me a bit about that that sort of transformation uh, in your own life, from being a staunchly conservative to where you are now politically, well, I'd still say that I was a conservative, um, and I would say the Conservative Party has changed and become 
are not a conservative party. The people who currently govern Britain are not conservatives. They are libertarian revolutionaries, actually, waging a war against the uh, traditional institutions of the British states, including the Church of England and what it stands for. And I can't or Christianity and what it stands for. That's my personal greed. Now, that was not the case, even under Thatcher. Uh, and I thought that Thatcher, Thatcher articulated a very powerful version of, of, of uh, Christianity. Uh, that lecture, what was the lecture she made towards the end of her term of office, which was the Church of Scotland, about individual freedom to do good. It, got, it, it was hated by the left, but there was a lot of, stuff like that lecture which i really liked uh i.e that you have free will is a is an essential part of what christianity entails and thatcher articulated that and then you, you know you have a you have obligation uh, to serve others with if you're you know success if you get rich or become successful what the current conservative um, government is about the obligation to take away as much money, abuse your relationship with the state to get grab money, contracts, buy peerages. It's a it's a sort of it's a permanent which would horrify Thatcher, by the way. And so I don't think that these this lot currently in power had anything to do with the kind of um, the kind of conservatism articulated by the. Very, very rare conservative philosophers like Burke or Oakeshott, and also even Tory leaders as recently as Thatcher and Major. And Ian Duncan Smith, actually, who was very much driven by um, Christian values. Yeah, this, this lack of integrity that we're seeing at the moment in, in our leaders and in, in politics in general, do you, do you see that? Do you see there being a correlation between that move away from Christianity um, and, and this sort of lack of morality in the public square? Very interesting um, question, that, uh, because I think there is one. And if you see, if you go back uh, two generations to the British state, much more to the establishment state of the sort of, uh, which, which which came under threat from the new, the new, the new religion of secular liberalism, which is what we live in under now. And um, that that uh, that was based upon the te- a, a, an interpretation of the teachings of Christ. You know, it was about the life. It's not about life. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about you. That was turned on its head in the sixties. Uh, uh, life is uh, is about not about. It's not about me. It's about duty and service. That is, you can see that driving the whole life uh, and sense uh, everything about the late Queen Elizabeth II was about that, self-sacrifice. Um, I know it was subject to open charges of hypocrisy, but it was profoundly sincere. So if you go look at the issue of integrity, you know, we had a prime minister um, in the shape of Boris Johnson and, uh, and Rishi Sunak isn't a lot better who felt it's perfectly okay to lie and lie and lie. Um, and I, uh, if you looked at um, you know, the sort of 60s, John Profumo lied to Parliament. I met him, um, and that was the end of his career. 
he went and worked in charity for 40 years. Um, and then it, I think it was at Thatcher's farewell dinner or something like that, or 10th anniversary dinner, the Queen was invited, as was Profumo, and Profumo was placed on the right hand of the Queen to say, look, we recognise that you have suffered and you have, you know, you, 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 you've come to turn. It was a recognition of the immense ethic of integrity, and it is unquestionably connected to Christianity and a sense of right and wrong, uh, which uh, drove British public life. And I, that had totally vanished. You know, that idea of integrity has gone now. It won't be articulated by any politician that I've seen. Um, and that I do see as a, like you cannot fail to connect that with the, the, the what you might call the collapse, or at any rate, the, a diminution of the role of, of Christianity and or religion generally, actually, in British public life. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm sure you would have seen the scandal at the weekend of the MPs, um, you yeah. know, talking about taking £10,000 a day for consultancy work. Uh, you know, Matt Hancock, Quasi Quartin were, were, those who don't know, were, were um, filmed by an undercover. I know, reporter. yeah, it's quite extraordinary, but look, and they didn't break any rules, apparently, you know, but there they are asking for 10,000 times a day to work for someone they don't know to influence government policy. It's, it, it's just a collapse. Of, it's, it's just a subsistence. And that's quasi quasi the former Chancellor of the Exchequer involved in this, Matt Hancock, the former Health Secretary. Uh, 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 it's just get, get, get rich. She used sub-public services as a way of self-enrichment. Quite amazing and appalling mm. and shocking and disgusting actually and being defended i think by other yeah i mean you know you i think a lot of people who are living through the cost of living crisis and struggling to make make ends meet are completely gassed seeing seeing those politicians acting in that way demanding those kinds of fees you know willing to take on second jobs it but but at the same time i feel that the public almost aren't surprised anymore we just we, you just kind of think, what else? We yeah. can't be shocked by. <laughs> We've had the, 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 so many scandals. <laughs> yeah, I know it's the, you know, the sale of well, in fact, yeah, we know that they flogged peerages. We looked at all. I mean, all those COVID contracts, which seem to. I mean, like, you can't prove that a thing, but they went with amazing regularity. To Tory party donors, it, it, they, they see the current generation of politicians. Um, certainly conservative politicians, interprets public service as a, as a method of self-enrichment. Uh, and that is a new form of, 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 of government, of, of, or, of, or quite an old form. You know, it, was, it reminds me of the corruption of the 18th century, when that was before you had uh, the evangelical Christianity which uh, in the shape of figures like Wilberforce and Peel and Gladstone or set, set a, a, a kind of um, a, a set of bars for public life and define what public life was about. And they saw it in terms of service and they certainly saw it in terms of the Christian idea of service. Mm. It's interesting. I heard Sajid Javid speaking recently and he was talking about what led to his resigning 
um, which was the catalyst to, to Boris Johnson um, having to step down. And he talked about being at the, the parliamentary prayer breakfast that morning and listening to a sermon about the common good and about service. And it, it was that that precipitated his decision to, to resign. What do you think is the role of faith in public life in, and in politics? It's a really big uh, question. As I said, uh, we now have a state religion, whatever the formal state of affairs, uh, is called secular liberalism. In, uh, and secular liberalism would like to, with everything is about driving a religion out of public life, including Christianity. The one that was mainly at one of the receiving end of this, of course, is Muslims at the moment because that. There's a sort of um, the, the what you get is a kind of uh, unspoken alliance between the secular liberals, the radical secularists, uh, and the bigoted racists. Um, so, you know, so you get the sort of this fascinating alliance against Islam between the progressive left manifested in the Observer and the Guardian, and um, the rancid right in the shape of the Telegraph, the Mail, and the Modoc group, etc. Um, and because Muslims are, tend, to be, are, tend to be immigrants and tend to not to be white, they are the ones which are at the seeming ends. But Christianity also gets it in the neck, but it's more protected because it's more establishment, and most Christians have blue eyes, in this, or we don't have white and blue eyes in this country. But there is a common... So faith is under attack and its legitimacy is um, constantly challenged. Um, I, I wrote a lot about the Trojan Horse Affair, which was an attack on faith. The Birmingham schools, there's wonderful teachers in Birmingham schools who've done fabulous work rescuing the schools which should so awful. Uh, and there's no question that in the part of that rescue involved bringing uh, Islamic morality to these schools. And that made them much better schools and linked them much closer to the communities which they serve, which were about 99% Muslim families. And this came under attack uh, from, the, um, from the British government in the shape of Michael Gove and the neoconservative movement because it's got a sort of ideological fixation on, on Islam as opposed to it. And also um, what the movement calls it as, as the recent... Well, last year's podcast showed that the humanists were, were very much against these schools and wanted to change the sacraments and get rid of the idea of of religious teaching in schools. And and, and the Muslims are the most vulnerable. But you wait and see. <laughs> Coming for you too if you're if you're or Hindu, Jewish, or Christian, or whatever. Do you see any way forward? If we've if we've said, well, we don't want Christianity anymore. Um, and that had those those core values at the centre. What is the way forward for society? Do you, do you have any hope at all? I do. Uh, and actually, I think this is a crisis point where we can actually... I, I hope that the nation will come together in a sense of moral disgust against this uh, conservative government who have betrayed all of the values they inherited from previous generations of conservative leaders. We need a Labour government. I have all sorts of reservations about Keir Stalner, but we need uh, a, an alternative government um, 
which will get rid of these spent or I mean these because that's so corrupt. And um, uh, we have to get rid of to change that. And I have we also have to change the way we live as a society. We have to find a new way of talking to each other, which doesn't involve um, attacking each other. A, a, a new language, which we used to have as a nation, um, use a you know we, we 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 could engage without insulting each other all the time. We could listen. We need to reconfigure the idea of listening to other people, and the great Christian value. Well, but also it's true of other religions. I think we must very important not to claim that it's Christian. Christianity is unique in any way among great religions in this. Nevertheless, I'm a Christian. I, I've learned, I reflect a great deal on Christ's teachings. So, you know, to welcome the vulnerable, the minorities, the refugees, the, you know, the, the Samaritan, the, you know, metaphor in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in, in the gospels. Uh, and that's what, who we are. With, uh, and that's why we fight for the underdog because that's 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 where on the side of the underdog. So the great national foundation myth of, of modern Britain is World War Two. It's 1940. We're fighting as the underdog against something barbarous and foul, um, and and we're fighting for the marginalised, the, the oppressed in World War Two. We didn't do enough, but the Jews who were being massacred and eventually the Holocaust. Um, that's what we're about as a nation. And we're not about greed. I think there has been a new uh, generation of very rich as a whole men who feel what they have a sense of immense entitlement about uh, running the country. And they have emerged in this noxious form of Tory donor. Uh, and they give money to political parties and other organizations which influence the political process, think tanks. Uh, we saw you know, very largely behind the trust budget, which more or less destroyed Britain's um, credibility, the Center for Policy Studies and the Institute for Economic Affairs. No, but I think we don't really know who gives money. To, I mean, uh, and they construct public policy. Um, and we need to sort of reframe all of that too. We, and we need to return to a decent politics. This has happened before. Politics was rotten. It stank in the 18th century. Uh, and as I say, you know, we had the we had the evangelical reforms to both the British public life in the shape of the Methodist Church. Obviously, the Anglican Church took a terrible role turning in the 18th century with these uh, sinecures and these what they call multiple people flogged flogged the, their livings to some sort of impecunious curate took the money um and um the Anglican church had become corrupt and hopeless and that's why you got wesley and wesley talks about re rebooted national morality something you need something broader because we've become a very different society with large immigrants and uh, we have much, you know, the Bafatis going churches is, is, is Islam, but Islam stands for the same values of integrity that the Christianity does, so they should work together. And the Hindus and Judaism was exactly the same with Judaism. I mean, you need to, uh, but the, those great, um, those great religions and all the other religions, they, they, what do they embody? They embody 
eternal values. We, not I. Community, not individual. Um, sacrifice rather than greed. And um, it stands you, it just scares you in the face that these insights, why are we, t and it, it is not a coincidence that the collapse of morality in British public life, and it's, by the way, it's not just Britain, has has, uh, has coincided with the collapse of religion. Um, now, how you reconfigure that, bring back morality, it's difficult. I'm reading a book, a wonderful book at the moment by Alistair McIntyre, philosopher, called After Virtue. Uh, and he actually is not, I don't think, particularly religious. He's a, he's a former Marxist, but it's fascinating the way he argues that the Enlightenment project has sucked morality out of out of political discourse. So he, he's trying to base, go back to what he calls the Aristotelian virtues but we have to do something I, I, I think we will but until we we have to go through a, a, a spiritual refreshment enormous spiritual refresh mm. that's really interesting that you that you talk about that because it sounds to me like you're saying that the two that the idea of sort of christian revival and you know transformation of our politics and society need to go hand in hand well, religious revival i don't I, i'm uneasy using the word just christian here mm -hmm. I am a Christian and I talk in a Christian language. I see other religions which are strong in this country uh, re represent the same values. Prepare to immerse yourself in the poignant and powerful history of the Windrush generation. This June, Premier Christianity magazine uncovers the stories and experiences of the Windrush generation through a Christian perspective. Don't miss this opportunity to delve into this significant part of black British history. Subscribe to Premier Christianity in June to get 50% off all subscriptions. Visit premierchristianity.com. Peter, can we talk a bit about your time at The Telegraph? Because that came to an abrupt end in 2015. Um, and it strikes me that when you talk about those values of I, uh, we, sorry, versus I, that you really put that into practice during that time um, because you you publicly exposed some of the wrongdoing that was going on at The Telegraph. Can you tell us a bit about about that time and about how you came to the conviction that that you needed to take the 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 stark action that you took? Yeah, yes. I mean, it was it was a classic case in point. I, I the Telegraph, the old Daily Telegraph, represent very represented a lot of my own. Uh, sensibility, and I felt when I joined the Telegraph, you know, the it, it revered institutions, it revered service. It under it was a, the ultimate paper at one stage of the of a particular manifestation of British traditional establishment, and it, it what it is a metaphor that it it was taken over by people who only appeared to value money. Which is true of many other parts of our public life now, including the Conservative Party, and and so the advertising department, which was able to exert massive pressure, as they discovered through Trident, over what appeared in the paper, uh, and there were a lot of examples of this. But I, I was one. The one my case in point was. Uh, I, I offered a piece about the 
things rather those sorts of things. I mean, it was, again, I, I think the Muslim, senior, political, Muslims were involved in British politi in politics, but they were having their bank accounts taken away by, uh, without explanation, by uh, a leading bank. And I, um, I um, didn't think this was, I thought this needed to be written about. And I did, I was put, kept on being told it was going in next week or been a bit of a problem with the lawyers, nothing serious. But eventually I, uh, I was, I learned, because in fact, it was this bank that was a major advertiser of the paper. And I, and I, and I felt that was wrong. And um, I started, I went through, I've written about this in, uh, in a long article in Open Democracy at the time about the process I went through with uh, the Telegraph and then finally mm -hmm. resigned. So, so in other words, you were exposing the the overreach of the commercial arm of the Telegraph, um, imposing imposing itself on the on the what should have been an objective editorial process. Yes, okay. Where did where did the courage come to do that, Peter? Because you must have known when you wrote that article for Open Democracy that you would probably lose your job. So, ha where did you get the courage to do that? Well, I resigned actually at the same time. Um, <laughs> I definitely think I got it. I have a sense of, we all should have a sense of right and wrong. I um, wrote a book in 2005 in the wake of the Iraq war, uh, Rise of Political Lying. And that was the most, um, the, the Iraq war for me was a very profound moment when I realized the British Prime Minister allied with the British state, particularly in the shape of the intelligence services, MI6, had conjured up something which didn't exist, the weapons of mass destruction to, to, to justify what can we now can see as it was an illegal war, which we could see at the time was an illegal war. And I, it made me quite upset. That's why I wrote this book about lying in British public life, uh, because I do think that you can't have a public conversation about or, or a private conversation about anything if people lie and so we 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 went to this war which has we're still suffering from the consequences today and brought you know, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands millions of died as a result and the terrible things which emerged from it like the rise of isis um, the the enfranchisement of Al Qaeda, um, the you know the state collapse of Iraq from a lie, uh, and you cannot have a you can't do business on that basis either at the public level or indeed you wouldn't sort of want to deal with your bank if they suddenly told you the wrong amount was in your bank account because that. Was convenient to your bank, or you know, your your anybody, your, your local, anybody you ever deal with, and to be learned. So that's why I wrote that book, and I was, I did think that I was trying to tell the truth about about what went on in the, the Iraq War and its aftermath, and I then um, I brought that into. Um, into the Telegraph when I moved there. And I, and I actually, I, I do think that's a particular role of a journalist. This was my um, analysis. 
I think your politicians do have to balance different, balance, have make different decisions, difficult decisions about what they say publicly. Sometimes they can risk jeopardize lives or by telling the truth. Sometimes they simply feel they can't because they don't want to upset their supporters and their but for journalists, our role, I think, is simply to tell the truth. It's very simple. We don't have power, but we can tell the truth. And it's that's a public to, to the public, and that is quite a privileged position to be in, except that the most journalists, the vast majority of British journalists, do not see it that way. They think their role and behave, and particularly this is the big newspaper groups, of actually telling the lies the politicians want them to tell. And that's, we see that again and again. We saw it during the Iraq war, but we've seen it many times since over Libya and, and Afghanistan, mm. Brexit, go on and on. And uh, that's a trend. Is that just a case of lazy journalism, do you think? No, no, it's structural because they read the papers now. If you look, about the, look at the kind of um, the rise of Boris Johnson um, uh, and his survival as prime minister for three years, he was, he, he, he was lying all the time. I wrote a book about that too, the assault on truth. Mm. Um, but it was it was a journalist who sort of revealed the the the, the part you know party gate as such. It was it was a Guardian journalist who revealed that. So in a sense, it was it was good journalism. Pippa, is, yeah, Pippa Crow. Pippa Crow was only on the Mirror actually. She's at the Guardian now, I think. Very much so. She did really well. Yes. And that came that came very late. Well, it came two or three years into the yes the period. Um, it was quite plain that Johnson was a liar well before then. I, I, I exposed a lot of these lies in a book I wrote before that. But you know, the assault on truth, it wasn't reviewed by any of the mainstream papers um, uh, in the Murdoch group, in the Telegraph group, or the Mail group, because they supported Johnson and went on supporting Johnson long after Prepper Crera had published his, her, her, her revelations about, about Partygate. In fact, they all went on supporting Johnson until the day left. They were completely unmoved by considerations of truth and falsehood. Mm. They about power and supporting one side. I think this is one of the... Um, Problems we have in public discourse now is that we is, we have moved from uh, a, 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 we used to have a single idea of truth, which well, a single exist a, 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 a commonly understood notion of truth. We've now moved to what sociologists or anthropologists call tribal epistemology. There is a truth according to which side you're on. And the idea you can identify truth empirically and say this is what it is has has, has at all intents and purposes vanished from public life. Now that means that we can't have a political debate about anything because the old political debates were based on an agreed set of facts about mm. the economy or the effect of this or that. Now it's simply just shouting at each other across an abyss. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what you what what you're saying reminds me of the whole transgender debate going on at the moment. You know, you've got women saying, "Well, hang on, this is biology. <laughs> Men can't become women." Um, and and then you've got you know um, 
the other side, the sort of LG, LGBT plus lobby saying, well, no, we can, we can become women. Yeah, this, this is truth. This is fact. And you've got that, that conflict. Uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. My only thoughts on that is that it's a, is that once again, I, I don't, I think people can, 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 can have a conversation which is much more generous and loving mm -hmm. than a conversation which is currently underway. Should we talk a bit about your book, Peter, your, your most recent book, Fate of Abraham? What led you to writing about Islam specifically? Yeah, I, I, I was, as I said, I was very profoundly affected by the Iraq war and the fact that we had gone to war on a series of lies about Iraq. And it made me um, reconsider my role as a, as a journalist. Because I did, although I was a, I was, I think I was opposed to the Iraq war. I wasn't very courageous about my opposition. In other words, I, I wasn't certain I was right. And I was very, I did, I did, I, I didn't, Right in favor of the war, but I was certainly wasn't on the streets protesting against it. So I then went away and started thinking I'd understand the world a bit better to reconsider my idea of what journalism is for. And I, 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 I noticed in within public discourse going up to the Iraq invasion and thereafter a, a way so many lies being told again about Muslims. I remember I went up to Manchester. There was some. There was a great story all over the papers, and in the you know leading the big TV channels, you know that there was a bomber, you know, bomber, bomber had been trying to blow up Manchester United Stadium, and I went and found this person who was a Kurdish refugee, um, who'd bought had met, whose whole life had been turned upside down after he. Bought a ticket to go to Manchester United. Somehow the police got hold of the idea he wanted to blow the place up, leaked the story to the papers, which splashed on it. And there's so many stories like that, which conveyed the idea that Muslims have the, you know, that they're all wanting to um, malign, loads of stories they want to cancel Christmas. So many stories. They 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 refuse to be clean in hospitals. These are very ancient medieval tropes against minorities, and particularly in the middle of British and English Middle Ages against Jews. Um, and so I started to expose these lies, which didn't make me a lot of friends. But I'm quite, and then I realised it was part of a much bigger thing going on to create a new language altogether about Islam, which uh, to demonize and to frame them in a very negative way, you know, the invention of words like radicalized, uh, nonviolent extremism, i.e. you can be extremist about wanting to attack anybody, or language is now uh, turning into a form of, but, you know, the language of Islam itself is becoming terroristic, and it's getting worse and worse through the hands. I, um, I, I, I then realized that this was related to stuff going on in the Middle East where we had a set of alliances with dictatorships in Saudi or UAE and other places 
where their their opponents were democratic Islamic movements, and they wanted to say that their democratic opposition was terrorist. So I, I realized there was a sort of haunting symmetries between what was happening in British foreign policy and in uh, domestic policy. Um, and so, and as a Christian, and not, I didn't write the book as a Christian, but as a Christian, you the story of the Good Samaritan, you come to the aid of people who are being unjustly attacked or victimized. And British Muslims have had a really rotten time. You're listening to The Profile Podcast from Premier Christianity Magazine. If you're enjoying this interview, please can you give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this podcast from right now. It helps other people to discover the show. Thank you so much. That's why I got involved a lot in the attrition course. Mm, mm. So many lies have been told about that. But, and I've got to know the teachers, in the, or some of them in the teaching these schools, whose lives have been destroyed mm. uh, by the British state. And that ultimately responsible, in my view, is, is Michael Gove, but there's these false narratives created about them by all the British papers, including one I worked for. Telegraph, the Mail, Times, uh, the think tanks, the policy exchange in particular, they mm. could create an idea which automatically means that people, Muslims who have been following the dictates of their faith, and, are, and, and actually they, maybe they believe in God a bit more firmly mm. than many Christians like me, yeah? Mm. Uh, <laughs> turned into enemies of the state. It made me very, very angry by the end. And I wrote the book to try and restore some sense of, I do wish people, more people would read decency to public discourse. And this is not to say that Muslim is, Muslims are perfect. You know, there are lots of real stinkers. There's awful Christians and awful Jews, awful, Muslims, awful secularists. It's just that just that they, they they were being framed collectively in the most unpleasant mm. way. It took me twenty years to write this book, but it's but I don't think many people have bought the book at all. <laughs> it looks very interesting. I I started to have a look at it over the weekend, Peter. Um, I think a lot of people would agree with you that Muslims in this country have been been uh, maligned and um, there's been a false representation of them in the press. But I think there is also there are also many Christians that think, well, hang on a second, there are aspects of Islam which are really concerning. You know, you just have to look at Afghanistan, what's happening with the women there, um, Iran, um, you know, ISIS, the, the awful things they did to Christians in Syria. You know, what what what's your response to that when Christian with Christians say, well, actually, there are there are elements of this religion which which are very much opposed uh, opposed to Christianity uh, and are very radical. So w what's your response to that? Of course, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not um, as I said, I'm not defending every Muslim. Take the example you gave of the Taliban uh, banning women's school uh, you know, or, or, or ISIS. The idea that they probably haven't got the time to go into it at length now, but 
the idea of what ISIS is anyway represents, it says that it represents Islam, it doesn't. It's very, talks of Muslims. I, I spent a lot of time talking to Muslim theologians. It's, but they, they've, ISIS is not a, 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 in any way represent the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. Hmm. They have gross distortion of the teachings. The sort of the cult of violence of, uh, of ISIS has nothing to do Islam and the Christian writers or near conservative writers who say this, uh, I just don't know what they're talking about. And um, and I go into that in this in this book. The second point I would make is try reading um, the try reading the, the, the Bible. I mean, you you've got plenty of horrible things in the, going on in the name of God in the Bible, and, um, not just in the Old Testament. So it's, there, there are, uh, there, you can make the same charges if you want to uh, against uh, Christianity. And I would point um, to the deranged Christian Zionist movement or in the States, which have had a terrible effect on American uh, foreign policy in the last 20 to 30 years, gross misinterpretation, the astrological framing of, of, of global events by Christian Zionist movements, which have had very strong um, impact on successive US presidents. I set that out in the book. So I, I'm, uh, of course, there are Muslims who do. Are you talking about things like the moving of the embassy, the American embassy? That would have been yes. I mean, uh, they, they were they 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 had impact on. They probably did have impact on Trump's decision, which was a very stupid idea, and that uh, uh, and nearly happened because the ridiculous Liz Truss wanted to do the same thing um, in Britain. Yeah, I mean, but I'm all thinking about um, the policies across the Middle East, the sort of series of wars, the idea that there's an end times when the Muslims are the enemy and so are the Jews, and it's very powerful in the United States. And then it, it, showed, it, 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 it turned itself into an appalling language about Muslims in the United States, in the, particularly in the aftermath of... Uh, of 9-11, where a, a mad public discourse encouraged by mainstream U.S. politicians, um, think, think, um, uh, and, uh, and 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 these U.S. groups enabled the, the the rise of nightmare figures like Trump with his wall, with his Muslim ban, and all the rest of it. Um, and so, I do accept. Very much that there are, you know, I, I, of course, ISIS claims to have some form of um, the set of connection with, 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 with Islam. It defies the teachings of Islam. I'd say that exactly the same would be true uh, of these uh, militant Christian groups in the United States. It's a really interesting analysis. Um, finally, look, I just want to say there are thousands of Christians listening to this interview. What could they be praying for for you specifically? Well, I, for me specifically, well, I think that the, the teaching of Christ 
going back to our what it can come about and what Christ was teaching was love, tolerance, kindness, compassion, an acceptance of outsiders, um, and a kind of a new kind of world where we care for each other rather than condemn each other. And I think that's what Christ's very short period um, on this planet was all about. And I think that the more we reflect on the lessons of Christ's journeys around Galilee and in Jerusalem, the better people, and we, we, we can try to become better people and like Jesus Christ. Sounds to me like you're, you're saying the prayer would be for, for you to, to grow closer to Jesus and to um, better reflect him to the world through the work that you're doing. Well, I think that's what you all should do as Christians, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's a sort of essential thing we must all do. And we'll become much better people and make the world a much better place. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Peter. It's been lovely to meet you today. We carry on. I think we have entered a moment of profound political, social, and above all, spiritual change. Mm. I think we're living through that at the moment. We only recently embarked on it, and the world—it's a very—there's lots of dangers and, and suffering ahead. But I think we will emerge from it in a different, as better people. been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.